In 1 John 4, we have the spirits of truth and error and the glories and duties of Christian love. Here now the reading of God's inspired word. 1 John 4, profitable for us. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth, confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that he, God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, 1 John chapter 4. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it. Verses 1 through 6, we have the spirits of truth and of error. 
Rules to test the spirits by. Believe not every spirit. This is the theme of chapter 2, if you'll recall, of the Antichrist. He says, this man has a claim to be of the Spirit of God. Stop believing everyone who claims that. That's what he's saying. It literally means to not be so easily duped. Stop it, he's saying. Believe not every spirit. What should we do instead? Try the spirits, whether they are of God. As gold is tried, whether it is genuine, because there are many things that appear to be gold, but are not. So he says, try them, test them, prove them. For many, he says, false prophets are gone out into the world. Pseudo-prophets, literally. Lying prophets. They're not going to come out and tell you, hey, I'm a false prophet. And so he's giving you tests. What can you test them by to figure out whether they're actually false prophets? The beloved sons of God have a duty of skepticism toward any that would claim the office of teacher or prophet within the church. A prophet is to deliver the word of God, and John's going to give us the tests. How do you tell that they will deliver the word of God to you? Here are the tests. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, verse 2. Here are the marks, here are the signs, here are the tests. Is this the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Antichrist? Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, or literally that Jesus Christ in flesh emphatically has come and continues in flesh. And this is not a confession of words only. In other words, if I destroy the substance of the coming of Christ in the flesh, but I use the words, I believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, do you think the Antichrist wouldn't use the words? Of course he'll use the words. He's a pseudo-prophet. He's going to lie to you. He'll say the words and destroy the substance. So what then does it mean that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, let's break it down. What does the name Jesus mean? Well, it means he is the son of Mary. He is fully man. He, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. So the name Jesus is his manhood and also his unique role as savior. He alone saves us from our sins. That's the first thing. What about this name, Christ? Christos, the anointed of God. That's what chrism is. It's the anointing with oil that the priests would have. Guess who else had it? The prophets had an anointing. And who else? The kings had an anointing. So Christ is that unique prophet, the only priest, the only king and head. He alone is our prophet, priest, and king. So if someone says, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, but he's not our sole prophet. He's not the only priest. His salvation needs supplements. And furthermore, he's not the only king and ruler. He's not the lawgiver and judge. What are they saying? They're saying Jesus Christ has not come and continued in the flesh. Now, the words in flesh, again, refer to a true human nature. He had a real body. 
He had a reasonable soul, and he still has that body and soul. And some heretics deny this as well. And then it says, is come. That means he was somewhere else, implying from John 1, his deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh. He came in the flesh. Fully God, fully man, our only prophet, priest, and king, the sole mediator, our only hope of salvation, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of the Virgin Mary, he has come and continues in flesh. And further, why did he come in the flesh but to save us from our sins? These are not mere words that he's talking about. These are doctrines. These are truths taught in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, taught by the prophets in the Old Testament, confirmed by the apostles in the New. No mere form of words will get you past this test. You must believe what is contained in those words. I note then that genuine Christianity is a propositional religion. It is propositional. That means you can make statements in words. You can declare things. That's what Christianity is. It's not merely deeds without creeds. No, it is both creeds and deeds. What are we to believe and what is the duty God requires of us? There are doctrines to be believed as well as deeds to be done. And these propositions may be stated in such a way as someone can say yes or no. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of David, fully man, that he's the only savior for sins? Do you believe that he is the only prophet, priest, and king anointed by God, the king and head of his church, the sole mediator? Do you believe that he came in flesh, a genuine and true body, a reasonable soul, conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of God, and that this God came in the flesh and saved us from our sins? Because if you don't believe that, that is a false spirit. Let us embrace these propositions of Scripture. Let us know what they mean, their import, and embrace them as the truth of God living in the light of them. Note there, verse 3, negatively, every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the Hebrewism. The Hebrew will state it positively. You must believe this. You must confess this. And then negatively, if you confess not this thing, it's for emphasis, showing the importance of this confession. He says, this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now the context supplies the word spirit. It's not in the Greek text. And this is that Antichrist, whereof you have heard is literally what it says. But he's talking about these spirits that we're to try and to test. There is the man of sin. There is the son of perdition. There is the Antichrist. But he's talking about Antichrist generally considered, this deceptive spirit, which would deny the unique prophet, priest, and king of the church. It might deny this Antichrist, that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and that through faith in his name, you may be justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses or any other law for that matter. 
The Antichrist will push against the ongoing incarnation of Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. And they will say things like, well, now he has a human nature that has been divinized. So it can be present in all places at once. No, the human nature of Christ is present in one place as all human bodies are. The Antichrist pretends otherwise. Oh, there are other mediators, you know. There are other means by which your sins may be forgiven you than just the redemption in Christ. This is Antichrist. And notice, he that is in us, verse 4, is greater than he that is in the world. Some people believe this is the devil. It is not. This is the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of error. That's what's out there in the world. And the world is happy to listen to the man of sin. It's happy to be deceived and to put on its own self-righteousness in the place of the righteousness of Christ. Yes, the world will accept other mediators. Yes, it will accept other prophets, priests, and kings. Yes, it will accept other ways of salvation more than happy to do so. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world. They're not sourced in the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that inspired the holy truth of the Bible. Rather, they have the Spirit of worldly philosophy, carnal wisdom, those things acceptable to men in their fallen state. The Antichrist, in other words, doesn't call men to repent of their sins. He teaches men how to manage their sins. That's the idea. Don't forsake your sin. Just learn how to manage it. You know, just put a little different dress on your sins. Call it something else. You know, it's just you're same-sex attracted. You don't have vile affections like God says. You're just same-sex attracted. No, you have vile affections that you must repent of. This is one of the teachings of Antichrist. And notice... We are of God, he says. Who is this we? Well, John is what? He's one of the apostles, isn't he? We apostles, he says, and those who deliver their doctrines faithfully. We are from God. That's our source. What about the Antichrist? Does he live by the apostolic rule? Does he teach by the writings left by the Spirit of God from the prophets and the apostles? No, he does not. He will not even listen to them. He that knoweth God heareth us. You don't listen to the apostles. You're not of God. A teacher who does not teach from the apostles is not of God. He that is not of God heareth not us. Don't accept him, his ambassadors. You don't accept him. Who are the ambassadors of Christ? The apostles of Christ. That's what apostle means. It means an ambassador. They treat on his behalf. They speak his words. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 2, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and what else? The commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So we must listen to the apostles. Any claim to divine wisdom to be from God without adhering to the apostles' rule in Scripture, the canonical Scriptures, is what? Anti-Christian, lying, and damnable. 
We can call it Christian, we can call it Mormon, you can call it Mohammed, you can call it mysticism, you can call it whatever you want. If you don't listen to the apostles, there's no light in you. They're not from God. That's what he's saying. Let us hear all that Christ has said to us by his apostles and his prophets. Let us discern and try the spirits by this rule. For if they speak not according to them, it is because there is no light in them. Then verses 7 through 21, we have Christian love, its grounds, the duty, its effects, and related truths. God is the source of love. Verse 7, let us love one another, for God, love is of God. This is opposed to the Antichrist, the lying prophet, the errors of worldly wise men. The word of God is surrounded by imposters, and you can see it in the doctrine and in the duty. The duty is love. The doctrine is what we've looked at. And so they will teach neither of these things. Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Here's another test of our faith. How can we assure our hearts before him? How can we call ourselves to repentance? Do we love the people of God? Do we have God's love that sent his son to die for them? And so we love them as God loved them. He that loveth not knoweth not God. He's never known God even at one point in time is the grammatical construction. Now, all men do know God, but this is a reference to the right and saving knowledge of God. If someone does not have the works of love, he cannot claim to have a saving knowledge of God, for God is love, he says, verse 8. He doesn't say that God is loving, which is true, but he says that God is love itself. God sent his Son he loved his people to the extent and in such a way that he did something about it. He sent his son to be the propitiation. This was the manifestation of the love of God toward us. No mere talk or theory, but actions of grace, redemption, and salvation. Verse 9, God's purpose was our everlasting life through the mediator Christ, that we might live through him. He's the mediator, the means by which we have everlasting life. Here in his love, verse 10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Who started the process of this love? God is the source, God is love itself, and he did it first. He loved us First, not that we loved God. If you compare our love, our responsive love to God, it is as if we don't even love him compared to his. Augustine comments, we did not love him first, for to this end loved he us that we may love him. God causes our hearts to respond in love to his love for us. And what did God do? And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God demonstrating his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This is good news. No man, he says, has seen God at any time in verse 12. Not even once has anybody seen God. And yet, he says, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us. You can't see God. You can't see his love. 
but you can see whether a person loves his brother. And that's what he's talking about. Here's how you can know. You can't see God, but you can see your brother. And then notice, we have seen and do testify. We are eyewitnesses, verse 14. And here we give our testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's another test. If they shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, not a mere man, but the only begotten Son of God, fully God and fully man, not confessing merely with the lips, but with the heart, receiving this truth and all the truths that support it. This is another doctrinal test. Then note verse 17, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, a conscience void of offense. Why must we practice this brotherly love? So that we may be void of offense and have boldness by faith, repentance, and new obedience. For perfect love, he says, casteth out fear, because fear hath torment, verse 18. Do you remember Saul being afraid? Do you remember what he was afraid of? That his kingdom would crumble? That it would be taken away from him? And so when God began to show him through the prophet Samuel that he would not be king much longer, what did he do? Did he say, well, Lord, I'm willing to submit to your will. If you want to take away the kingdom from me, I know it's for my good. So I will gladly lay it aside and give it to your servant David, whom Samuel anointed to become king in my place. Is that what Saul said? No. And he feared the judgments of God, didn't he? He was afraid of God and the torments that would come upon him. Why? Because he did not fear him aright. He did not fear him as a son fears and reverences his father. He feared him as an angry judge who's coming to take away his good things. It has torment. This is not perfected love. This is a fear of a slave who is doomed to destruction and he knows it. Some people say in the New Testament, you see right here, there's no fear in perfect love. There's no fear in the New Testament. We don't fear God anymore. Really? Did you know the Apostle Paul says that we perfect holiness how? In the fear of God. This is the fear we have for our Father in heaven. The reverence that we hold our God in, both by nature and by His grace, we are to reverence God. But we do not fear Him as those to be tormented in hell forevermore. We do not fear that when he crushes our purposes and designs that he hates us and he wants bad for us and he's taking all my toys away. I hate this. No, we embrace the rod that chastens us. This is the fear of God that scripture teaches versus the fear as Saul's fear that when God comes against our purposes and designs, we must grasp them tight. We must ensure that we get what we want. No. That is not perfect love. It hath torment attached to it. We love him because he first loved us. God is the source, the first mover, the uncaused cause of our love. And love is that genuine fruit of his love toward us, the mark of his Holy Spirit. If any man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a weak Christian. Is that what he said? No, he's a liar. 
He's telling you a false statement. Faith is proven by your works. Remember James said, you have your brother who is hungry and he doesn't have clothes. He's destitute and naked. And you say, be warm and filled. But you don't give him the things that he needs. Do you actually love your brother? That's what John is saying. We're to love not merely in our words, but with our actions and in truth. He that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Which is greater, to love God or your neighbor? Well, to love God. It's the first and great commandment. But you can't see God, can you? You can see your brother. So if you want to know, do I actually love God? The test is, do you love your brother whom you have seen? Have you done the less? Because if you're not doing the less, you're not doing the greater. Let us then love God truly and sincerely, not in mere talk, but also in action, just like God's love. God's love gave his son, so we ought to give of ourselves for our brethren, for their health, for their salvation, for their provision. He that loveth God is to love his brother also. Not merely his neighbor generally considered, although that is true. We are to love all men generally, but God particularizes that duty that you must love your brethren, those begotten of God himself. And thus far, 1 John chapter 4.